evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law, and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. The coronavirus pandemic and the impact of efforts to control this virus have devastated communities in North Carolina and across the country. During this crisis, the business of government continues and impacts many people in so many different ways. One particular population that is intimately affected by this crisis are those individuals who are indigent and charged with criminal offense. As a general rule, the legal representation of indigent defendants is vested under the authority and direction of the North Carolina Indigent Defense Services Commission. Created by the North Carolina General Assembly, that commission has established 17 public defender's offices, which covers 31 counties across North Carolina. The representation by these offices are augmented by the appointment of private attorneys where that becomes necessary. One of those established offices is located in Durham County, which is responsible for representing indigent defendants in this county. That office is headed by attorney Don Baxter, who was appointed to that position in February of this year. Prior to this appointment, Attorney Baxton served as an assistant public defender in this office for 21 years under the direction of Attorney Lawrence Campbell. At the time of her appointment, she was the senior associate public defender. The Durham Public Defender's Office was established in 1990 with eight attorneys and its director grown to 23 attorneys, two investigators, and other support staff. Generally, it represents more than 15,000 defendants each year in cases which range from juvenile delinquency, abuse and neglect, involuntary commitment, misdemeanors, felonies, and capital murder. Attorney Baxton was literally sworn into office at the same time that the coronavirus crisis emerged in North Carolina. Since her appointment, she has had to be very creative and persistent in ensuring that the rights of indigent defendants and their best interests were protected. We are always quick to brag that Attorney Baxton is a proud graduate of the NCCU School of Law and has served this institution as an adjunct professor. And she's also served at the uh, School of Government at UNC Chapel Hill. She is a graduate of NC State with a bachelor's degree in English and African-American studies. Tonight, we are going to discuss the Durham Public Defender's Office and many of the issues which that office faced in providing legal representation to indigents generally and particularly during this coronavirus crisis. So, Attorney Baxton, thank you for uh, joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, uh, 
first of all, congratulations on your appointment as the uh, Durham County Public Defender. And I don't know if con congratulations or condolences are properly in order. Congratulations is just fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can work. Uh, we can work with that. But, but in terms of starting us out and uh, educating our audience about the public defender's work. Can you describe what it is that the uh, Durham County Public Defender uh, does uh, for, uh, for Durham County? Certainly. Well, as you know, when you see on TV, to give you an example, whenever a person goes into court charged with a criminal offense and the judge asks if they can afford a lawyer and if not, the court will appoint one for you. We are what the court will appoint when persons cannot afford to hire a lawyer. So once the judge assigns the case to our office, then we um, appoint either an attorney in this office or if there's an overload or a conflict in a matter where we have co-defendants, then we will assign the case outside of our office to a private assigned counsel that's on the court appointed list. So Irv had mentioned that there are so in North Carolina, we've got 100 counties and 31 of those counties have public defenders offices. And so how does that work in those counties where there's not a PD's office? Where there's not a PD's office, there is a list of attorneys who have agreed to take indigent cases, um, either through contract or a flat fee rate in those counties. So they still have attorneys who are appointed by the court, but they're not public defenders. They are private attorneys in private practice who have agreed to represent um, indigent persons when assigned by the court. Now, you, you are a graduate of uh, North Carolina Central, and we, again, we're, we're proud of that. But how, how did, you know, coming from ROPA, mm -hmm. uh, did you end up joining the uh, public defender staff uh, and then staying there for, for 21 years? Well, um, I knew ever since I was 13 that I wanted to be a lawyer. I knew the type of lawyer I wanted to be would be one that helped people and made a difference. Um, people are surprised and learn early on. I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor. But once I came to the public defender's office, got the job opportunity here, I loved it. I loved what I was doing. I was helping a population that's important to me to make sure that they're getting quality representation. And so work just became wonderful. It did not feel like work. It felt like I was doing what I needed to do for the community. So time just went by fast. It does not seem like 21 years, but I guess that happens when you enjoy or love what you're doing. Well, as a general rule, what are some of the uh, barriers that, uh, that you encounter as a public defender, particularly working with uh, indigent uh, defendants? Well, the first and most often barrier we have to overcome is convincing the clients and their parents, be it if we're representing juveniles or their family members, that just because we are public defenders and are paid by the state to represent you does not mean that you're not going to get quality representation. We are lawyers just like someone that you would go out and hire if you have the funds to do so. And I would wager in most instances, quite frankly, better because we do it every day, all day. So we also have to convince them that just because we're 
talking to a prosecutor doesn't mean that we are working with them against you. We are working for you. So once we get past that, then the clients understand are and generally appreciative of our service. Well, I guess in a large sense that you are a large law firm. We are. In the traditional sense, uh, because now you have uh, a staff of uh, 22 uh, attorneys, investigators, and staff people that are able to uh, devote uh, their skills and knowledge to uh, working with uh, those uh, clients uh, that uh, that's appointed uh, to you. Can you talk about the kind of uh, caseload? Yes. that the uh, individual uh, attorneys might have in your office. So as you indicated, yearly we will take care of or dispose of anywhere between 10,000 to 15,000 cases a year. And that's all cases from misdemeanors, juvenile cases, um, felony cases. So each attorney could carry anywhere depending on the types of cases that they handle, anywhere from a hundred upwards to 200 or more cases um, when they are representing persons in this office. Well, that, that's, that's a lot of cases uh, to, uh, to, to handle. Uh, how, how do you kind of manipulate yourself through uh, the process so that all of them uh, uh, receive quality uh, legal representation? Well, we personally monitor the numbers in-house to make sure that we are not overwhelming the attorneys because it is most important to us that the clients are getting zealous and adequate representation. So when the numbers are too high, that's why we have attorneys on the court appointed list to help when there are cases and we're in a position of overflow or conflict to help manage some of that. Because you're right, it is a lot of cases. So that's why it is necessary to have um, private assigned counsel who was available and willing to assist in taking cases in matters of overloads and conflict. Well, un unlike private attorneys, you can't pick and choose uh, your clients. Uh, you, no. you, you, you are assigned them, but can you talk about other ways, other ways that there are differences between the work of the public defenders and the work of uh, private attorneys in handling uh, these, uh, these criminal cases? Well, as I said, um, it's something we're invested in like 100%. That's all we do. Some of the private attorneys might do other things besides criminal law. So we are 100% focused on the criminal law aspect, and that's all we do. So we um, are always making sure that we're necessary. We need an expert. We go and seek funds from a judge to get the expert to make sure that the client is being adequately represented and his or her issues are being presented to the court as they need be. So we do the exact same thing that the private attorneys do um, when they're hired with the exception of the funds that we get for experts and other things come from the state. We just have to go through the judge to get permission for the funds, but we do get the experts that we need. And I, I would imagine that another kind of key difference is, especially if you're talking about attorneys on the court appointed list, and, and there's been a lot of um, kind of controversy around that from the lawyer's perspective. If you get a flat rate per, you know, per case, per, you know, client, uh, that the goal is to try and maybe resolve it as quickly as possible. And 
potentially in a manner that's not in the best interest for the client. And so having a public defender who's not so much worried about that, but just as you noted, 100% invested in making sure that the client is adequately uh, and superiorly represented. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of difference between someone who works in the PD's office versus maybe someone on the court appointed list? Right. Well, someone in the PD's office, as I stated before, that is our total commitment is totally to protecting the constitutional rights of our clients and making sure that they get adequate representation. The private sign attorney, they have other things they have to worry about. They have to worry about keeping the lights on. They have to worry about having enough funds to pay their staff. And they have other cases that they have been retained on that they have to take care of. So they are in pulled in many different directions and many of them do their very best to make sure that they are taking care of their clients. But we have to be realistic. They have so many other things that they have to take care of as well. So we hope that the private sign attorney that is handling these cases have that same commitment to indigent defense, um, that they want to make sure that this person who cannot afford to hire a lawyer is still getting great representation, even if they are private assigned counsel working for a flat rate, because we all took the oath and agreed this is what we're going to do, regardless of whether or not the fee is $1 or $500 an hour. But we have to do it. I guess in a real sense, then, you all are a specialist in, uh, in criminal law, while many of the uh, private attorneys are generalists, and they handle a wide range of cases uh, that they are responsible for, as well as uh, being required to uh, turn a profit at the end of the month. I think that's an adequate way of putting it, Professor. <laughs> as always, you have a unique way of summarizing things, but I think that's the great way to describe it. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the uh, the training of uh, those persons uh, who end up working as uh, assistant uh, public defenders uh, in, in your office and just what it is that they are required to do or the kinds of qualifications that they bring with them to the office? Well, we prefer, um, being a legal eagle, we prefer to have those persons who come into our office be persons who have some type of trial experience if possible. If they're new graduates, we really love for them to have done something like trial advocacy or moot court or taken trial practice while they were in law school. We, um, once they come into our office, the School of Government is a great partner in making sure that we get the training we need. We send new um, public defenders to new defender training so they can get acclimated to what it is to be a public defender and help with the legal training aspect. And then once they start to progress beyond misdemeanors, we send them to felony training. And once they really get invested and good at it, we send them to the trial school that I'm also an adjunct professor with, where we show them how to prepare a case, a felony case for trial from beginning to end. And in addition to that, in my office, we also conduct in-house training. So we never have our assistants going into court not having some type of training. Well, can you kind of explain to our audience a little bit about the differences 
in the level of preparation, knowledge, and skills uh, with those attorneys who are handling misdemeanor cases as opposed to those attorneys who are handling felony cases? Yes, well, the misdemeanor cases are generally entry-level positions. Um, you're doing your misdemeanor larcenies, your stop liftings, driving while license revoked, driving while impaired. Those cases are important, but they don't necessarily take as much time and preparation as, say, your felony robbery with a dangerous weapon would take. So those cases are generally assigned to attorneys who have been here for quite some time and have quite a bit of trial experience under their belt from district court and have demonstrated the ability to take on higher level offense. Now, as, as the, the director of, of, of that office, are you still in the actual practice or you are, are more on the management side uh, at this point? I'm doing more management, but I will still be taking and still have some cases, mostly murder cases, because I am of the opinion you cannot ask your assistants to do what you won't do. So if you won't go into court and fight, then you can expect them to go into court and fight. So I will continue to have a case load. It would just be much smaller since I have more administrative duties now. All right. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review. And uh, we're talking with uh, attorney Don Baxter, who is the public defender for uh, Durham County. And uh, we're discussing uh, the uh, pro provision of uh, rep legal representation for indigent defendants uh, in this uh, county, uh, and particularly as we go through this uh, coronavirus crisis. I want you to stay with us as we continue uh, this uh, discussion. So we'll be right back. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we continue our discussion with uh, Attorney Don Baxter, who is the public defender for uh, Durham County. And uh, she was appointed to this uh, position just in uh, February uh, as the uh, coronavirus crisis uh, began. So she uh, stepped into the uh, fire. Uh, almost uh, on the first day that uh, she walked into the office as the uh, uh, as the director. Uh, but let me just get to that. Uh, how has the uh, coronavirus crisis impacted one, what it is that you are able uh, to do uh, in court, but also the uh, uh, ability to manage the caseload? Uh, that uh, that you are assigned to handle by the uh, by the court system. Well, um, after the chief justice order limiting court operations, of course, that knocked out a whole lot of what could be done in district court. Um, so those cases where persons were out of custody who would normally come in for first appearance, that couldn't happen because it was just too many. There were efforts and our efforts still to take care of those persons who are in custody. So judges are available every day to conduct first appearances, to do the pleas of persons who are in custody, um, if it will get them out, to address their bond, to get them out if possible. 
But then we have to worry about the population of persons who are out there with cases where there may be issues, emotions that need to be filed to preserve certain evidence while we're waiting for this pandemic to resolve itself. So luckily under the statute as the public defender, I can tentatively appoint myself to those cases and a judge can later um, affirm or set aside the appointment once the pandemic is over. And we did that so that the attorneys can go ahead and be assigned and look at protecting any constitutional issues that need to be protected while we are going through this pandemic that could be time sensitive. So that is how we had to shift gears a little bit um, in terms of how to continue to represent the persons that we are charged to do so under that. Now, Attorney Maxson, when you were sworn in, of course, you could not have anticipated that we would be where we are right now. Mm -hmm. None of us could have uh, a month ago. And how have you personally and professionally kind of adjusted to this new reality? And how are the assistant public defenders who work in your office, how, how are they doing? Well, you're right. So we did not anticipate this. So I also have to look at making sure that my staff is safe and available to do the job that we took an oath to do. So we have started working on a limited schedule where I try not to have any more than 10 or 15 persons here at any given time. I have the attorneys rotating in to take care of cases so that we're not all here at one time and we can properly social distance. We were lucky to get some masks that uh, are available to wear in court as well as out of court when they choose to. And so it's just been a little different, but we've been still working every day since court operations were minimized. We still have been doing what we can every day. So someone is here every day, at least 10 or 15 of them. I'm here every day and at least 10 more are here to help me. Uh, you, you, you talked about limited uh, court activity uh, which is, uh, I guess, was directed by the uh, uh, Chief Justice of the uh, Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. uh, that edict or mandate did not impact uh, the commission of crime out in the, uh, in the community. Uh, has there been uh, a decrease in criminal incidents occurring in uh, Durham County leading to uh, arrest where your office now has to uh, be engaged to uh, represent uh, those uh, individuals? If I look at the first appearances, because we do first appearances every day. So with the first appearances that we do for the persons who are in custody, my answer to that question would be yes. Generally, um, I'm being told by the assistant who's assigned over there for a particular day that there's nowhere no, generally not more than 10 or 15 cases, which is generally low for first appearance. We're used to 50 and above at first appearances. If I look at the out-of-custody cases where the district attorney sent me a list of persons who have been charged and were not able to have a first appearance but needed uh, a tentative appointment, there were quite a bit of those. So in some instances, yes. And Attorney Baxton, do you, so the court operations have changed, law enforcement has changed as a result of this pandemic. Do you anticipate that some of the adjustments that have had to be made will have an impact on how 
your office operates or just kind of the court system operates with respect to criminal cases going forward? So after we're out of this uh, social distancing uh, time? I believe so. I believe that there will probably be measures taken to ensure that we don't experience some type of rapid spike once some of this social distancing is set aside. I suspect we will be dealing with this for quite some time. I've braced myself for that. My staff has braced for that. We will not be surprised if we're still dealing with this as late as August, honestly. Well, can you talk about how, you know, the bail situations are, are being held now? Because even though you have a reduced number of uh, people at first appearances, all of those people typically will have some conditions of uh, pretrial release or they will be uh, admitted into uh, to the jail. So has there been a change in how uh, that determination is made at the magistrate's level or at the district court level? as to who will actually go into uh, jail awaiting trial. Yes, there has been a movement more towards um, citations um, as opposed to actual arrest, which is why I have this list of persons that needed appointment until a judge can later decide. Where the crimes are nonviolent, I think our judges have taken the position that if they feel that the person is not a danger to the community, they will put them in a position either to release them on an unsecured bond or giving them a bond that they can make or sending them to pre-trial release to be monitored while they are out on custody. So there have been efforts taken to have as many people out on pre-trial release as opposed to in the jail. And, and politically, I guess that's kind of sensitive uh, because it leads you or the, the system in a uh, position that if these individuals go back out and engage in other criminal activity, then you are accused of coddling uh, criminals. Uh, how, how, how do you how, how do you work with uh, the uh, the defendant populations to help them to understand that they need to uh, order their steps <laughs> uh, to order their steps in the freedom they're being they've been given during this <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> yes, we have that conversation, but, you know, most listen, some don't. And I think the judges will take care of those who don't. But I think we've had instances where more have been listening. And as you said, ordering their steps and the freedom they've been given during this time, as opposed to taking actions that might result in them being back in custody and unable to be out with their friends and family. Now, Attorney Baxton, I, I wanted to ask you, you had mentioned, and I thought it was uh, interesting, that you knew you wanted to be a lawyer since you were 13, mm -hmm. and that you initially thought you wanted to be a prosecutor. Can you share with our listeners, one, wh why you, you know, were so certain at 13 that you wanted to enter the legal profession, and what was it about being a defense attorney as opposed to a prosecutor that led you to the career uh, that you have now? Well, um, as a child, I always loved watching the legal shows. Um, and then I had an instance where I had a family member who was murdered and the murder was not solved. And I always felt that because of her race and her socioeconomic background, that her case was not necessarily given the attention that it should have been given. 
and that the family and her children did not get the closure that they should have been given. So that was when I originally thought I wanted to be a prosecutor, to do something different, to make sure that those families or victims who were victims of crime and looked like me got someone who was making sure they got the closure or the representation they deserve. However, I've always been concerned about getting the wrong people convicted just to get closure. And when I got here was actually Professor Ringer. Um, I interviewed with the district attorney's office and I didn't necessarily feel too good about that, even though I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor. And when I talked to Professor Ring, he said, well, Don, why don't you look at the public defender's office? You know, those people over there, they need help too. They just made some mistake. And I thought about that because, as I said, I've always been concerned about the wrong person being convicted for something they did not do. I would prefer that an innocent person be innocent and free as opposed to convicted just to give me or whomever has been harmed by crime closure. So I thought about it, interviewed, got the job. And once I got here and started working, one of my first cases was a grandmother, and I was raised by my grandmother. <laughs> who was charged with kidnapping her grandchildren. Mm. And it was just like, wow. When she actually was in jail for quite a while before I was able to get her out, at least 20 days or more, which was a lot to me, which from my perspective was nothing more than her taking care of her grandchildren that her daughter at the time had left with her. And the daughter never came back until she was ready. And that turned into a kidnapping. So that case for me cemented that I was on the right side of the fence where I needed. And I have never regretted being over here mm -hmm. because I just cannot imagine that just because you don't have a lot of money or you might be of a different race that you're not entitled to fair justice. And you know that, and that raises a, another uh, question. I know when I was doing criminal defense work and I, I didn't do a lot of it, but I, I think all lawyers who have done some defense work uh, get asked the question, how could you defend someone if you know that they're guilty? And can you just share your philosophy and the philosophy of, of the folks who work in your office about providing zealous representation to, to everyone? Our job as defense attorneys are not to be the judge or the jury. You're not there, so you don't know what they actually did. You didn't see what they actually did. My philosophy is our job is to make sure that their constitutional rights are protected, that they're not violated, that they get the best representation possible, whether it be at trial or through plea. And we let the jury decide as it is supposed to be under the system or the judge decide because I would prefer that a guilty person whose rights may have been violated, but goes through the process appropriately and a jury comes back and find him or her not guilty, go free, as opposed to an innocent person whose rights have been violated, end up being convicted and spending their life in jail for something they did not do. So I think the best way is not to get involved in whether this person did it or not, but focus on protecting their rights under the Constitution. 
you you mentioned earlier uh, that when you came to uh, law school, and I guess as you grew up, uh, you carried with you this notion that uh, there was some racial disparity yes. in the uh, disp dispensation of uh, the uh, of justice uh, by the system, and 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 that's not uh, atypical of uh, African Americans. Uh, many of us uh, had that uh, that view, and that view kind of uh, uh, walked with us through our journey into the profession and even while we were in uh, the, uh, the uh, profession. Uh, have, have you seen that there has been any uh, changes in this, uh, this attitude or the reality of the, this, the disparity and its impact upon uh, African-American communities and the respect uh, that uh, the law gives to individuals within our community? I think there have been some positive changes in that direction. I think more so now that members of the community are more sensitive to the racial disparity in justice. And I think a lot of it was brought to bear when Senator McKissick did the Racial Justice Act in the Senate where the person could go back and challenge the death penalty if they could show that race was used in jury selections or in their conviction. And I think that brought it to the forefront and people started paying attention, although begrudgingly in some instances, they started paying attention. And then we started seeing all these cases when DNA was actually tested of innocent men who spent decades in prison and will never be able to get those years back. And I think the community have be has become sensitive to that and realized this is not something that we can continue to ignore. We have to do something about it and make sure that justice is really the way it should be in an even playing field for everybody. So I've seen some changes, slow, but I would say better late than never. And there's still room to go. All right, this is the Legal Legal Review. And uh, we're talking with uh, Attorney Don Baxter, who is the public defender for uh, Durham County. And we're talking about uh, the uh, provision of uh, legal services uh, or legal representation to indigent uh, in uh, in this county. Uh, we're going to uh, continue that discussion. We want you to uh, stay with us as we take a uh, quick break. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at 
law.nccu.edu. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with attorney Don Baxton. She is the chief public defender of Durham County. And attorney Baxton, right before the break, you were talking about biases that exist within the criminal justice system. And this was something that had an impact or made an impact on your impression of the the criminal justice system when you were young. Uh, And I wanted to ask you about implicit bias that exists at all levels within the criminal justice system. So we know that uh, we've got uh, racial profiling that's going on that is uh, explicit racial bias, but also you've got that implicit bias as well. So at the law enforcement level, we've got prosecutors who have implicit bias. We've got judges who do. And I suspect that we have uh, defense attorneys as well who have implicit bias, and that could affect their representation of clients. Can you talk about what your office has done or is doing to make sure that the public defenders are kind of aware of this and and are mindful in terms of their representation of clients? Yes, ma'am. Well, most of us, if not all of us, because we do have some newer attorneys who haven't had the opportunity yet, have gone through some type of racial equity training, either once or multiple times, to make sure that we're always aware of that issue. And my attorneys know, just like when Mr. Campbell was um, the public defender, they know that you see it, you call them on it, be it in trial, be it in your plea negotiations, you don't, you get comfortable with calling them be it the prosecutor or in jury selection, in trial, or judges, you you have to address it because that's the only way it's going to get fit. And know that you have a boss who's going to support you on that. It's not going to tell you to back away from it because we back away from it, then who's going to address it? Who's going to help correct the problem? So most of us have gone through that training. Most of us do call them out on it and are not afraid to continue to do that. So that's just something I'm going to continue to do. Before the pandemic, we were looking at getting training on um, restorative justice. Let's kind of set that aside, but we will do that once we can. And that's what we're going to be doing in our office, along with other parties. And when you talk about calling like the prosecutor or the judge, can you give us an example of how that might manifest itself and when a public defender might say, okay, there's a problem here. I need to speak to this. What does that look like? So that looks like if I come to you with a young person who may have made a mistake with no prior record and you offer me a misdemeanor just because this person is of color, but I see that under the same circumstances, there was this young white male or white female who made a mistake and you're offering them a deferred prosecution to keep their record clean, we have a problem. I am asking and demanding the same treatment. I need to defer for this client so that this young person of color who made this mistake can have a clean record and have an opportunity to become a productive citizen, just like the white person that you offer to defer to. And so that they can go to college if they choose to or find good employment without that being hindered by a mistake they made as a child. 
or even as an adult for circumstances that we don't know. They probably were hungry when they picked up a steak and tried to walk out the food. That doesn't require them getting a criminal conviction to follow them for the remainder of their life and hinder them in the rest of their life. So things like that. Don't be afraid to tell them, no, I've seen you do this for someone similarly situated. I need to think, oh, we have a problem. Well, you know, you're in Durham where the environment uh, in the courthouse is significantly different than in uh, many counties. You have, uh, you are an African-American woman in charge of the public defender's office. There is an African-American woman who is the district attorney uh, in Durham. There are African-American judges at the uh, superior court level and at the uh, district court uh, level. how, how, how do, you, do you find that there are differences between how you are able to address the racial question in a Durham County and that other uh, public defenders or system public defenders might be able to address it in other counties where we don't have the same racial environment? Well, sometimes it can be easier than other times. It just depends. Like Ms. Dawson said, we all have our own implicit biases, whether we realize it or not. And it also goes for some African-Americans. So sometimes you have to bring it to their attention that they are acting in a way that is so similar to what we are trying to overcome and get away from. So you have to bring it sometimes to their attention that maybe this judgment might be a little too harsh or this sentencing might be a little too harsh. I might need you to get rid of some of these fines because of this. So we still have to bring it to their attention as well. Just because we shed the same hue doesn't always mean you have the same view. So you have to be willing to bring it up wherever you see it from whatever direction it's coming. You know, I also noticed you know, that you, you do training with the uh, School of Government uh, and I know you do some training with the uh, uh, IDS uh, and the uh, other uh, young public defenders who are coming up. Uh, how is this uh, racial disparity uh, dealt with or accepted or, I guess, infused into uh, the attitudes of those uh, younger people who are now entering uh, the uh, public defender's offices around the state? Generally, I notice they come in, the younger attorneys, because of the environment we're in now, we're talking about the racial disparity more and how to fix it. A lot of the younger attorneys are coming in already on fire, ready to do their part to help fix it. So we look for those because that's easy and fertile ground to get them acclimated to our mission and what we do. Attorney Bassin, you mentioned that your office was looking at restorative justice. You've had to put that on hold for just a minute while we deal with this pandemic situation. But can you talk about what that is and what it will look like when implemented? Well, we were going to have the training um, to get our staff familiar with the process and how it works and the types of cases that would be appropriate for that. And that's really an alternative to getting someone in and making sure that all parties involved and heard are being heard and try to come up with a resolution that is pleasing to all parties. So we haven't had the training yet, but 
my hope is that that would be another way that we can divert some cases out of the justice system and limit the impact of criminal convictions for matters that can be resolved in that way so that people can recover from a mistake they may have made while perhaps they were under the influence of drugs or something else was going on to cause them to engage in criminal activity that they otherwise would not have done. And we have an understanding victim who really doesn't want to see someone go to prison for decades or years, but really just want restitution or to be made whole or an apology um, for doing this to me. So those are the things we're looking for. I'm always looking for and interested in doing any program where we can divert criminal convictions from the courtroom. So I'm always open to that. And that was something I'm very interested in doing and looking at and seeing if that's something we can get implemented here in Durham along with the district attorney. Let me circle back uh, for, for a minute, uh, turn it back to uh, uh, the, the, the present representation of, uh, of uh, defendants who are in jail uh, awaiting trial and the uh, responsibilities of your office to them. And I'm thinking more about in the area of the medical uh, attention and the uh, medical issues which uh, they face while they are in the uh, Durham uh, County Jail. What, what, how, how does your office uh, monitor uh, what is going on in the jails to ensure that, particularly with this uh, Corona uh, virus, that the uh, medical and health needs of the uh, defendants who are in, incarcerated are, are basically covered and taken care of? So when we are aware of issues, we certainly communicated um, to the sheriff or whom he designated us to communicate the issues to, to make sure that they are being taken care of in the best way they can. Of course, we can't necessarily tell the sheriff what to do or order him to do anything, but I will say this sheriff has been as attentive as he can in doing what he can to keep coronavirus out of his jails. But even sometimes best efforts can't stop some things, but I, I do know he's doing what he can. And he's been coming up with whatever we need, IT in terms of a way that we can communicate with clients without putting ourselves in danger or them in danger. Um, the social distance, he's open to that and doing whatever he can. We recently addressed how we can we do the parole hearing. Um, where people are feeling safe and that we can have social distancing. And they were very amenable to coming up with a way that we can do that just last week, actually. So we're doing what we can to keep our clients safe as well as ourselves. Attorney Baxton, what advice can you share or give to the Durham community kind of collectively, particularly the communities of color? who are disproportionately represented in the criminal justice system about what we can do to um, improve that. Uh, you've been, as Irv mentioned, a public defender for you know, a couple of decades and, and you've seen a lot and I'm sure you have thoughts on how we as a community can do better to support those vulnerable members of our, of our community who oftentimes find themselves involved in the criminal justice system. So, so any thoughts on that? 
Well, what the first thing that comes to mind for me is serve when you get a summons to be on jury duty. Please, sir. Please. I need the community to think about how you will feel if you're sitting at the table charged with some crime and you decide you want the trial and you want to be tried by a jury of your peers and you look over in the box and there's no one over there that looks like that is one way that we can help out with the racial disparity. Do your duty and serve when you get that summons to be a juror and not come up with reasons why you can't be there. I would say get more involved with our youth. Um, don't be so quick to always call the police. See if there's an alternative that we can do. Can we get them into some program in the church or in one of the community centers or something? I think getting them tied up in the criminal justice system for minor offenses should be the last. Can you, can you talk a little bit about uh, what your office does in regard to uh, community education? Because I know you have a lot of involvement with those people after they have been arrested and uh, they are sitting up in front of a judge uh, having to uh, fight for their uh, freedom. But uh, is your office involved in efforts to try to uh, minimize that uh, initial contact uh, with law enforcement, which will end people up in that kind of position? Yes, we um, often go to events when we can. We did it under Mr. Campbell, and I will continue that. We give them out little info cards of what to do or how to behave if you are encountered by a police officer. To minimize, one, to keep you safe. You don't want you getting hurt, and two, to protect your rights in that situation. And we do what we can to educate the parents as well, because the biggest problem is our youth. Those are the ones that are most vulnerable to being caught in the criminal justice system when they shouldn't be. They've raised the age, but that doesn't mean they're still not getting brought in when they shouldn't necessarily be brought in. So we do what we can to educate them on how to protect their rights on the front end before we can get to them so that they're in a better position for us to really help them out once they are assigned to our office. Now, you mentioned, uh, I'm going to mention this again because I thought it was great, that you knew at 13 that you wanted to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give uh, young people, 13-year-olds, teenagers, um, who are interested in becoming a lawyer? Like, what was the path that you took and what advice would you give based on your journey? My advice would be, one, don't give up. Don't be discouraged based on your background or your lack of resources. Or you're not seeing how it can happen. Trust and believe that there are people in the community that will help you if you try to help yourself. Work hard and just keep going forward, keep your eyes on the prize and just never give up or have anyone tell you you're not smart enough or you're not good enough to be what you choose as your profession. You can do it. And what about, what advice would you give a law student who might be interesting? So you mentioned that uh, Professor Thomas Ringer uh, provided you with some great advice and I know you had other mentors at the law school. Can you talk about uh, your law school experience at, at Central and how that helped shape the type of lawyer you are? Well, North Carolina Central is just a great place to 
develop your skills as a lawyer. They really believe in truth and service. I love that motto. They are very serious about it and very sincere about it. So I will say to the law students who are there to take advantage of the opportunities you have there. That is the greatest place you can be if you desire to be of service to your community. You are in the right place. So you need to take advantage of that and listen to your professors, get involved as much as you can in those programs like trial advocacy, Moot Forward. I think Professor Jordan is probably still teaching his civil rights class. Yes, he you is. All of that arsenal <laughs> under your belt so that when you come out, you have a good foundation that you can build and grow on. And your professors are always there after you graduate, as well as former students. So it's just a great environment to learn and grow and to become the type of lawyer you want to be. Uh, our time is, is running out, but I do want to just uh, raise with you your, uh, I guess, your comments and uh, of the uh, particular barriers that uh, females face within the legal profession. I, I've noticed, noticed that there are a large number of females that's on your staff, which is uh, probably a little different uh, than it is in other uh, public defender's offices and law offices in general. So can you kind of just talk about uh, the, uh, the gender uh, perspective, uh, particularly as it relates to uh, women of color uh, within the profession? Well, I would say you're right. We do have a lot of females on my staff. And I think in some other offices, it's kind of a lot of females that are on their staff as well. I would say traditionally, there used to be this opinion that there weren't a lot of female defense attorneys. Mostly females who did criminal work were on the prosecution side. That's where we were expected to be. I would say we can be wherever we want to be because we are smart enough, strong enough, and have the ability to do this work just as well, and in most instances better than our male counterparts. So don't be afraid to do it. Well, we are out of time. We'd like to thank attorney Don Baxton, who is the chief public defender of Durham County for taking time out of her day, very busy day, and spending it with us. And we'd also like to thank you for all the work that you're continuing to do for our community. And we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, of course, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And you can also find this show on iTunes in podcast form. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.